0: Matthew chapter 2, 1-12 to Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way.
1: Thank you, Lyra. and we'll keep our Bibles open to those uh, pages, to that passage. And so we'll be exploring this morning. Well, we haven't... Uh, Quite hit the Christmas season yet. Uh, perhaps I felt a little bit strange to you to sing "We Three Kings this morning. But the telltale signs will begin to show soon. In our fairly secular society now. Uh, most of those signs will be things like uh, tinsel, Santa Claus and uh, Christmas albums by washed-up artists that nobody knows or hears about anymore. But there will also be uh, well-intentioned attempts from Christians to engage society in the story of Jesus' birth. Some of those will actually be okay. Maybe. But if we were to be honest with ourselves, and we should be because we're Christians... We know that most of them will be pretty cringe-worthy. Uh, one of my favourites is uh, this one. H- hang on. Have we... You got it? Importing. Importing. Sorry. One of my favourites is... This one. Can you just put it up on. me? Oh, there's the title. There it is. Wise men still seek him. Now regardless of whether you think that is uh, cringeworthy or not, the, the message of it is nonetheless true. The wise still seek him. And this morning's passage is this very one about the wise men coming from the east to seek out the king of the Jews. And this is the only passage in the Bible that tells us about them. Now, this isn't just a nice story for us to tell whenever the the Christmas season comes around. To say, you know, really interesting things like this. It is, as with the rest of the Bible, one worth meditating on for our own souls Do we seek the one who has been born King of the Jews? This morning we'll explore our passage in three sections with the following headings. One, the wise seek him. Two, wicked kings seek to destroy him. And three, the wise worship him. Let's have our Bibles and our hearts and our minds open to seek what God is saying in his word to us this morning. Let's begin with our first section, the wise seek him. Now there are three mistakes in the song that we sang earlier, We Three Kings. Are you aware of that? Poor John Henry Hopkins Jr. Who would have thought that you know, this hymn that he wrote would be systematically and repeatedly torn apart for its factual inaccuracies two decades after he wrote it. Sorry, two centuries almost after he wrote it. Now full disclosure, this is probably my favorite Christmas carol. Especially when it's done with the Take 5 vibe, which we didn't do this morning because we thought that would be a bit too confusing. But it's a bit problematic, and I'll point out why along the way. The first is right here in our very first verse. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. As I mentioned last week, it's notable that Matthew doesn't give any details about the birth itself. We've heard so far about Jesus' genealogy. We've heard about the angel who came to Joseph and uh, told him about the news of who he would be and and about the birth and what would happen. But this first half of the sentence is all he gives us about the actual birth. You see, Matthew is interested in moving the narrative along and telling us about what is happening around Jesus and his birth. But he makes sure that we get these crucial details. One being the detail of where, which will become important later on in the story. Bethlehem of Judea. And this was, as Matthew says, in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod the king is an important character in the rest of this chapter, and we'll see more of him next week. So it's good to get a bit of background on who he is. Now, kings, uh, kids, kids, have you heard of Herod from the Bible before? Anyone heard his name? Sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. Got a few nods and thumbs up. Well, there are a few guys in the Bible who went by the name Herod, and some of them were actually called different names. We're going to see one of those next week, but this Herod we can refer to as Herod the Great. That's how he's usually known in history. Herod the Great was the son of a guy named Antipater, who was the client king of the Judean province under the Roman Empire. So think of his kingship like the prime ministership of Australia. Albo, Anthony Albanese, he is the leader of our country, the the top dog. But our country is also part of the British kingdom. It it's, comes in underneath that. Now, kingdoms were a bit different back then, but that gives you a bit of an idea of the arrangement. Herod the Great, he was king over Judea, over this area, but under the rule of the Roman Empire. And Herod himself was actually not from Judea, and in fact, he only ascended to the throne after a war with another guy named Antigonus. So these guys have great names. I reckon we should bring some of those back. Now, it's important to realise that for a brief period of almost 100 years, the Jews were basically their own kingdom. They they essentially were able to say, I am king of my people and, and we are my people. They weren't under the Roman Empire. And so when their kingdom fell to Rome and they lost much of that individual identity, you can imagine how they probably felt about the Romans. So when Herod won the throne and he became Rome's client king in 37 BC... Roughly 30 or so years before Jesus' birth, it's not hard to see why most of the Jews, they weren't really big fans of Herod. He represented the empire that ruled over them. As a matter of fact, it was only really a small group of people that were Herod's supporters. But when you're a king, you don't need people to like you. You just need people to fear you. And they were certainly afraid of him. Towards the end of Herod's life, he became increasingly paranoid about his throne, about his crown. So much so that he executed some of the people who were closest to him. And this included his favourite wife. I say favourite because he had ten of them. And their two sons because he was afraid that they were trying to plot to take his crown from them. So the birth of Jesus was near the end of Herod's life, and this was probably pretty close to him being at peak paranoia. Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome at the time and was a friend of Herod's, is known for saying this about him. I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. This is one of the reasons why Matthew draws attention to the fact that it was Herod the king. Yes, it's true that he was the king of the Judean region at the time. But more importantly, Herod the king wanted to stay the king. He didn't want anybody else to be king. And that's an important thing to remember as we look at this chapter. But Herod the king is not the only king in this story. We have, after all, the kings from the east, don't we? Wait, kids, is that what your translation says? Does it say they had three, three kings from the east? What does it actually say? You can look on the screen if you, if you want. What does it say? Who came from the east? Wise men. Wise men. That's right. It says wise men. And here is the first of our three mistakes. They were not kings, but wise men. And other translations, uh, English translations say magi, which is a closer translation, both to what the Greek actually says and also to the meaning of the word. And when we use the word magi in English, we often think of somebody who practices magic or is maybe into astrology in a really big way. And that's closer to who these wise men likely were. You might remember from our Daniel series that the term Chaldeans was sometimes used to refer to those who practiced a kind of astrology and dream interpretation. The ones whom King Nebuchadnezzar brought into his council to tell him his dream. Now even though we don't know for sure if these magi came from Babylon, which is in the east... They're likely the kind of Magi that Matthew is talking about here. And what we do know for sure is that they travelled a long way to be in Jerusalem. they, They didn't have cars or planes back then, so the journey was probably the equivalent of driving from the East Coast to Darwin. Though it probably took even longer and was more difficult. And certainly, certainly less comfortable. I don't know if you've ridden on a camel. Robert and I have. Turns out they don't have air conditioning. But why did these wise men come all that way? Well, they tell us in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come To worship him. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You notice how they haven't even asked about the one who will become the king of the Jews. Not the one who will be crowned king of the Jews. They say the one who is born king of the the Jews. Jesus is born with that title. And they ended up in Jerusalem because they saw his star when it rose... And have come to worship him. <clears throat> we'll talk a bit uh, later on about what Matthew means when here when he says worship. But before we get there, we need to ask how these magi, magi knew where to go and why they were looking for him in the first place. You see, it's one thing to see an incredible phenomenon in the night sky. <clears throat> but it's another thing to see something like that and then to think to yourself, oh... That, that must be where the King of the Jews is going to be born. I'm not much of a stargazer myself, but when we had a supermoon recently, I think I went out and looked at it. I might have even taken a photo. And I hear that a conjunction, which is when planets align and, and look like a really bright star, is, a, is quite an impressive sight to behold in the night sky. Has anyone actually observed one of those? No? Astronomers and others have put forward theories about what exactly these magi might have seen. Perhaps it was a planetary conjunction or maybe a comet or a supernova. Whatever it was, I have no problem believing that God could have orchestrated something like that or done something that actually cannot be naturally explained. But the question is, how did these magi connect the star to Jesus' birth? Well, again, it's possible that God could have uh, just told them that that's it. After all, in verse 12, at the end of the passage, God warns them in a dream not to go back to Herod. Maybe it was a dream from God that sent them in the first place and told them. But perhaps more likely, they were familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And in particular, this verse in the book of Numbers, part of Balaam's final prophecy to Balak. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It's not just that uh, this verse talks about a star coming out of Jacob. Jacob, This is a messianic prophecy. This is something Uh, that that he's speaking about the coming of the Christ. You might remember last week that Jacob said in Genesis that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the scepter being something that a king held was a sign of his rule. These Old Testament allusions and hints and pieces all come together like a puzzle to complete the picture. And that's what Matthew is doing as he writes God's breathed out words, showing us the the connections, the pieces that come together to fulfill the coming of the Christ. He's helping us put the picture together. And so the Magi from the east, they came a long way following a star which God placed in the night sky to lead them to the one born King of the Jews. Who would have thought that these Magi from a faraway land Could know who Jesus was. You see, God has and is always doing His work. And He is always working in His world through His Word. One of the reasons you and I have come to know Christ is because of the work of John Wycliffe and his team, who translated the Bible into the common language in the 14th century. Peoples of tribes and tongues all across the globe continue to seek Jesus and come to know him through his word that is proclaimed and translated into their tongue. And that kind of work continues all around the world today, even in our own backyard. Brothers and sisters, keep praying and supporting the work of getting God's word out to the nations. Because people everywhere right now, still seek him. The wise still seek him. Well, as you might imagine, an insecure and paranoid king, worried about his throne, is not exactly going to be thrilled at hearing this. That brings us to our next section. Wicked kings seek to destroy him. If you've ever been around somebody who's a little bit on edge, maybe, uh, you know, they're stressed about work or perhaps they're prone to uh, being a bit of a warrior, as in one who worries as opposed to one who goes to war and fights, then you know that feeling, right? That feeling of of being careful about, you know, what you say so that you don't get nailed. And you know that if you don't quite say the right thing, then, well, this person might blow up and nobody will win. (laughs) Now, parents, as a side note, recognize that you are the key people in your household for this. Be aware and careful of how your responses to your kids will make them feel about their safety. I think that's what's going on here in verse three. Let's read. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. For Herod, as we know him, This is hardly surprising. He's troubled about the fact that there is another king of the Jews. And that title, by the way, was one used by the Romans to refer to their client kings, this client king of the Jews, like Herod. And so these magi, they either didn't realize or they didn't have the tact to not use that title in the presence of the very person who is supposed to own it. So we can understand why Herod is troubled by this. King of the Jews? I'm king of the Jews. What are you talking about? But why all Jerusalem with him? Why would they be worried, troubled by this news? Well, a few readers have suggested solutions, but I think the one that makes the most sense is that all Jerusalem was troubled because they all knew what the implications would be. An unhappy Herod, Herod, an unhappy Herod makes for an unhappy people. You see, not even being in the king's family is enough to feel safe. So you can imagine why everyone else would have been on edge. And sadly, as we will see next week, it's proven to be a valid concern. Herod is bent on the destruction of Of the true king of the Jews. So this is how he seeks to bring about his plan. In verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, to be clear, the chief priests and the scribes of the people, they were the religious leaders of the Jews. Of all the Jews, these guys would have been the ones who knew what the scriptures said about the coming Christ. And so Herod gathers them and gets their intel. And here is what his religious council has to say. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this quotation is actually a rather loose paraphrase of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which we read earlier, that passage. And it looks like Matthew has actually added 2 Samuel 5, 2 onto the end of it. I've put it up there on the screen for you to see. Now, was this a, a common way of putting some of those passages together in anticipating the coming of Christ? Well, we don't know for sure. It's not recorded anywhere else. But this is not a strange insertion into the Micah 5 quote because a couple of verses later, Micah prophesies that this ruler will also be a shepherd. Now listen to uh, what the quote is saying, though, other than just telling us that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. He says, You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Uh, again, that is different to Micah 5, so much so that some think it's an outright contradiction. But the slight change is communicating what has become the reality of Bethlehem because of the birth of the Messiah in that city. Even though it was a little city and considered to be insignificant among the clans of Judah, it became one which was by no means the least. Its status had changed. Why? Because it held the honour of being the birthplace of not only King David, but the eternal King who would sit on David's throne. And this one who would sit on his throne would not only be a ruler of the people, but also a shepherd. Jesus is the true King of the Jews. And he would be king and shepherd of not just the Jews, but all his people. And his people, after his crucifixion and resurrection, would be made up of people from all tribes, nations, and tongues. The wise still seek him, and the wicked still seek to destroy him. These days, not the same way Herod did. I mean, you can't. His body's not here. But in their lives, they seek to destroy him. And in those of others. The wicked do not want Jesus to rule as king. That's why Herod began his plot. Let's read from verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he said to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Kids, if people are doing something secretly, tell me, is it usually because they're doing something good or something bad? What do you think, Connor? Bad. You know, sometimes people do things in secret for good reasons, right? I've always loved surprises. I love to surprise my wife, even if she doesn't get a kick out of it as much as I do. But most of the time, when people are doing things secretly, it's because they are planning something bad, something that they don't want other people to know about or to discover, Such is the case here. Herod's secret meeting with the Magi was definitely because he was plotting something bad. And remember this verse, verse 7 for next week. Herod notes in his mind the time when the star had appeared so that he would know roughly when the child was born and how old he would be. And then he sends the Magi on their way to Bethlehem. Go and search diligently for the child, he says. Tell me where he is so that I can worship him too. Is he going to do that? Beware those who pay lip service to Jesus. But inwardly do not worship him at all. This bit makes you wonder though, doesn't it? If Herod was so keen to destroy the boy, why wouldn't he just force the Magi to to tell him where he was? Or send some soldiers along with the Magi? It seems to me that given Herod's reputation, he perhaps knew that the Magi might have been spooked by having his soldiers with them and, and fled in the night or something. So his play here is one of a more cunning nature. Go and worship him, he says. Tell them, tell me where he is so I can worship him too. You see, he doesn't want to arouse their suspicions. He wants them to think that he's on the same worship team. Team Jesus, let's worship him together. And right here, it's worth noticing one of the most incredible juxtapositions in the story. Now, kids, juxtaposition is a big word. Anyone know what it means? Nope. It's a good one to impress your friends with. Just say it, even if you don't know what it means. But I use it because it's a really helpful word for this passage. To juxtapose something is to put it side by side with something else so that you can pair and see the difference between the two and the difference becomes extremely clear. You see, if you juxtapose black and white and put them next to each other, then you can really see the difference. This is what we see here. Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, they are meant to be the very ones who are seeking the Christ. They are supposed to be the ones who rejoice in his coming and who would cross the desert to seek him, to find him, to worship him. That's who they're meant to be. But instead, it's not them. The very people through whom the Christ would come are not the people who truly seek him. No, it was the outsiders who truly saw him and truly sought him. The Magi from the East would put God's own people to shame. Brothers and sisters, may this be a sobering reminder to each of us how easy is it for how easy it is for us to have god's very own words more accessible to us than to any other people in history and yet how easy it is to know what the bible has to say about christ and to keep it at a far enough distance from ourselves so as not to bother actually seeking him out. You can know everything the Bible has to say about Jesus and even say that you want to come and worship him and secretly still cling to your own crown. Don't let knowledge of the Lord remain at knowledge. Kids, growing up in a home where your parents believe in Jesus and trust in him is a wonderful blessing. Hearing the Bible and being taught the Bible is a grace to be thankful for. But don't let it stop at just knowledge. True on the word your parents feed you, digest it and let it grow you. Let it produce in you a real faith that seeks out Jesus and worships Him. Brothers and sisters, pray and plead with God that your heart would not be hard, that you would not become so familiar with the knowledge of Christ that it does not. Move your affections. Pray that he would prize your fingers off your own crown. Because the person who bows before the king of the Jews finds a treasure that far surpasses anything this world has to offer. And that brings us to our final section. The wise worship him. The wise worship him. Those who worship him are wise. The wise who still seek him do not stop at merely seeking him. Let's read from verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose... Kids, have you noticed whether the Bible tells us how many of these magi there were? Did it say, at any point, three magi from the east? Nope. No, here it simply says, they went on their way. And that's our second inaccuracy from my favourite carol. We don't actually know how many of them there were. It could have been two or two hundred, maybe even two thousand. That's probably stretching it, but, you know. But regardless of how many, here comes the star again. Did you notice? It's the same star. Which is one of the reasons why I think it's difficult to try and find a natural astronomical explanation for what it was. I'm more than happy to be content knowing that God did this. this time, it rose and it came to rest over a more specific place where the child was. We don't know how specific, whether it was exactly where the house was or not, nor do we know exactly how long it had been since Jesus was born. So perhaps he was a toddler by this time. But notice the Magi's response in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. God doesn't waste words. He's not like me, piling on unnecessary phrases and extra adjectives that add nothing to the sentence. He wants us to grasp just how truly joyful this moment was for the Magi. They understood how historic, how incredible it was that the God who created the universe, who formed the stars, was fulfilling his promise of raising up a ruler and a shepherd for his people and that he was now moving the stars to lead them to him. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And friends, this is the response of all who know who it is that they seek. And it is the response of those who know who it is that they have truly found. That's why Paul could say decades later in his letter to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Christians are rejoicers. And it's not because we block out negative thoughts and we live in a unicorn fantasy land all our lives. On the contrary, we rejoice exceedingly with great joy because though we see our sin and the brokenness of our world, we know that we have the hope of the world in Christ, our Saviour. Rejoice. Perhaps you don't feel that joy in Christ very often, if at all. Know that when Paul says rejoice always, he's not suggesting that you'll never be sad. Paul himself knew great sorrow, even to the point of death. No, the joy of the Christian is in calling to mind that even in our darkest night, the bright star of Christ's salvation will always be present with us. And so we look up. And even when it feels like the last thing we want to do, we say to our souls, rejoice exceedingly with great joy because God has given you a saviour. Even if all we see everywhere else is darkness, Our bright morning star will always, always, unfailingly pierce that night. You have sought the Lord and he has found you. You have sought the Lord and you have found him. Our joy springs from seeing that our way will always be lit up by the Lord. Guide us to thy perfect light. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, and worship the King. I mentioned before that I would talk about these foreign magi worshipping Jesus. The word used can have a broad meaning, But its more common use has a religious sense of worship. So the question is, what kind of worship is this? Were the Magi true believers? Or were they just paying homage to a kid that they read about in some sacred scriptures? Matthew certainly would have known that the kind of astrology that these Magi practiced was not condoned by God at all. And we saw that in our Daniel series as God's men repeatedly showed up the foolishness of the other magicians and the Chaldeans. And I reckon he's also recognizing in these events a theme that is consistent in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel would be a blessing to the nations. And the nations would recognize the king who sits on David's throne. The Queen of Sheba did this when she visited David's son Solomon and marvelled at his wisdom. She gave him the enormous gift of gold and spices and stones. And Solomon in Psalm 72 prays for the coming of foreign kings to bring gifts and to fall before Israel's king. And this, by the way, is probably why Christians started to think of the Magi as kings. So that factual inaccuracy is a bit more understandable. And interestingly, our third factual inaccuracy from our song is to do with the third gift, myrrh. Myrrh is often thought of as a burial perfume. That's what the fourth verse of We Three Kings is is getting at. And that's understandable because they use it for Jesus when burying him. But if you look through the Old Testament, you'll see that it was actually used for happy occasions. It was one of the perfumes that Esther was treated with for six months before going to the king. I mean, I highly doubt that she wanted to smell like a corpse when she went into him. So the three gifts were actually all some of the best gifts that you could give to someone that you really treasured. And I think that that is a sign of possible genuine faith in the Magi. Given all of that, we can't say for sure. But it seems to me that God is telling us that the Magi worshipping Jesus was closer to true worship than just generic reverence. Whatever the case, true worship is certainly the response of true believers. We fall down and worship. Now, uh, we don't fall down or bow much in our church gatherings or in our Christian private devotion, for that matter. Some might more than others. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with bowing or kneeling. At times, I think it is an appropriate physical posture when praying or singing. But the reason we don't have any regular prescription of that is because the most important worshipful posture of the Christian is in the lives that we live. Here again from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You think the Magi's offering of gold, frankincense, and myrrh was a lot? Well, the follower of Jesus offers their whole self. The follower of Jesus gives up their bodies as an offering of spiritual worship. Is it not true that when we find a greater treasure... That we are willing to part with a lesser treasure in order to get it. We trade up our treasure for the greater treasure, do we not? We're willing to lose minutes of our day to travel further for that better coffee. We trade the comfort of a body without pain in order to gain big biceps and washboard abs. We're happy to lose a large chunk of our free time and money in the hopes of securing a spouse. So if it's true that we're always willing to trade up our treasure, then where we stop trading up is where we think that we found the greatest treasure. Actually, the few spare minutes are more important than the boutique coffee, so I'll keep that. You know, the lack of muscles, well, that's a price worth paying to not be sore for most of the week. Oh, the relationship, well, I prefer to keep my time and most of my money. What treasure in your life feels like it's not? Worth trading up for Jesus. Herod didn't want to trade away his crown. That was his greatest treasure. The chief priests and the scribes, they didn't want to trade away their status. That was theirs. But the Magi were willing to travel great distances and offer exorbitant gifts in order to fall before the King of the Jews and worship him. Have you found Jesus to be worth trading in all of this world's treasure in order to gain him? If not, do so today. Because he traded away even more than anything we ever could in order that we might become his. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that your sinfulness might become his and so that his righteousness might become yours. In an extraordinary act of God's grace, which we receive through faith in him. Friends, he is worth your everything. He is worth surrendering your last penny, your last morsel, your last breath. So don't sit on your earthly treasure. Trade up. If only we could see how cheap, how worthless the things are that we seek and that we cling to so often in comparison to Christ. Christ. Lord, open our eyes. You will never have buyer's remorse when you trade all your treasure to gain him. And the more you look full into his wonderful face, then the more the things of the world will grow strangely dim. Come before him. Fall before him and surrender all that you have. Offer your life as a living sacrifice of worship to him. Because he is a worthy treasure. One worth far more than anything else. Far more than our gold, our frankincense, our myrrh. Our money, our status, our security. The wise not only seek him, the wise worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that treasure of the kinds that glitters before us, of the kinds that grabs hold of our hearts, of the kinds that we think is not worth giving up for you. So often, captivates our hearts more than Christ. Lord, may you grant us wisdom to be ones who seek you and to be ones who fall down before you, lay down our lives and worship you. God, we need your help in this. Please, by your Holy Spirit, work and transform and change our hearts so that they might not deem our crowns more worthy, but so that we might fling them before your throne in worship of the one who wears the crown our King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.